I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. The year was 1876, the centennial anniversary of our great nation. Colorado had just been added as a 38th state in the Union, the West was still very much wild, and the Black Hills of what we know today as South Dakota and Wyoming were alive with the Russian miners seeking life's fortune in gold. Amidst the chaos of a still budding nation healing from a civil war, Congress created the Office of Special Agent in the Department of Agriculture to assess the state of the forests in the United States. Scientist and historian Franklin B. Huff was appointed as the first chief of the United States Division of Forestry, the predecessor to what we know today as the United States Forest Service. The United States Forest Service is an agency of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that administers the nation's 154 national forests and 20 national grasslands, comprising 193 million acres of land. We are fortunate enough to be joined in the studio by representatives from the USDA Forest Service in Florida to talk about who they are, and the issues they are tackling right here in our own backyard. So I'll let you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves. I don't want to mess your names up or any, uh, mispronounce your names. Uh, and, and tell us uh, what drew you to the, the USDA Forest Service. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for allowing us to um, have this format to be able to um, reach out to others and be able to educate and inform them. Um, I am Antoinette Tony Davis, and I am a natural resources. Um, been with the agency for 21 years. I work on the Ocala National Forest. And what draw me to this field was Girl Scouts. I am a Gold Award recipient, which is the equivalent to Eagle Scout. And I've always been an outdoors kind of person, and I love serving others. And this was the perfect match for me. 21 years, you forgot to tell him that you graduated high school when you were nine. <laughs> Tony does not look like he should possibly be old enough to be a, to have graduated college and been in forestry for 21 years. 21 great years. Great years. <laughs> I'm Carrie Sakarik. I'm the Deputy District Ranger of Ocala National Forest, and I've been a wildlife biologist since 1988. I've worked at Ocala National Forest since 1994. Um, what drew me to the Forest Service, was a little bit about my background, but um, Ohio was pretty much completely cut over. The Great Lakes had collapsed. My river caught on fire when I was four, Cuyahoga River, 1969. And um, I grieved for things I missed. I missed seeing giant chestnuts. It was gone. I came to the south um, for graduate school and went to the University of Florida, and all the large cypress were gone. And just the fact that our heritage was robbed by the people before us, the Forest Service was the one entity that was doing the most restoration, the biggest chance to recover endangered species. It had made a big shift in its um, in its spirit and in what it was. It basically, it went back to what origin was for, which was watershed, timber, wildlife, and recreation. And um, it was striking a good balance in the 80s and 90s that I want to be part of. That's pretty awesome. I mean, it, <clears throat> it, it takes a special kind of person to want to come out and be involved and literally work in the woods and the great outdoors every day. It's uh, not something for everybody to, to sit there and 
and say, you know what I want to do for the rest of my life? Work. <laughs> like, is, actually work. It is work. And yeah. I, I know our, literally, our sweat and our blood and everyone else who works in this agency, it is really on the land. And um, it feeds your soul. I mean, I, I don't know how to ever stop doing this. Yeah. You touched on a couple things. Like, it's just, I gotta be careful because I can go down these rat holes real easy. Like, the chestnut blight and things like that, that since I've been a little kid, we had a surviving chestnut on my uncle's forest in Pennsylvania. Well, it survived for a long period of time before the blight finally did get it. But there was still a surviving chestnut in the early 1980s. And he wouldn't tell anybody where it was and things like that. But, you know, family, we went back there and... Um, so it's interesting you mentioned that, and I understand that there are still chestnuts in in the United States, but they're closely guarded secrets almost. And well, is that all fall kind of under for, uh, the U.S. forestry? Yes, you, it's something okay. else great that our agency is doing, and of course it's cooperating with universities and others. But um, you know, two things is is the the different breeding programs to get blight resistant chestnuts from the existing survivors, like you know there could be sprouts coming out of your family's stump or something near it. I don't know, some of its progeny might be making it. So they have the, the strict line and then they have the, uh, the breeding in with the um, Chinese chestnut and then outcrossing it again. And, um, and having that success, I mean, it, it, it's hard because it's also shifting baseline. So when we try to do restoration here in the south, it's long leaf in this deep, deep parts of the south. And up in the mountains, they're trying to get chestnut back. But when you go into an area of forest, and you're putting it back to what we valued historically, there's going to be people, and you guys have all seen you know, newcomers to Florida that go, you're destroying everything. Or like, no, we're fixing. We're fixing something. This is, this is like, it was awful that this was lost, and now we're bringing it back. And, and they're angry because they saw it the way it was when it was a junked-up mess, and that became their sense of natural and their sense of beautiful. And we have to be sensitive to that and... Things like this help tell the story of, you know, so like why are, why are they not grieving for the chestnut? Why are they not grieving for the longleaf like I do? And, and I don't know, you know, maybe it was watching Wild Kingdom and, you know, uh, Lassie when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Marlon Perkins. <laughs> yeah, Marlon and, and, you know, my hero, Jackie Stowe. But we were so, like, we were watching that and, and it hurt to see you know, the last episodes where they went all over um, mm -hmm. in the Forest Service or Lassie's owner was a forest ranger. Like, how cool. You know, that was shot, some of that was shot here in Ocala National Forest. They went oh, to like every national that. forest. Really? Area. I didn't know that either. Yeah. yeah. That goes back to us, um, our mission. We're a multi-use agency. So we're public land where people can do just about anything. And we do get a lot of filming requests. So um, that's just part of some of the things that we have to offer to the public when they come ask um, we try to, you know, we do a good job of vetting them and making sure that it works out for both of us, that, you know, the Forest Service image is going to come out well. But it's a, um, the forest is multi-use, so we, we tell people that all the time. There's many things for many different people, and we hope that people come out and use it. So how much land do you guys manage in the state of Florida as a whole? I know you guys are local here to us with the Ocala National Forest. Do you have any idea how much there is in total in the state of Florida? 1.2 million acres, and I think that does not count the Choctahatchee National Forest that is now underneath Eglin Air Force Base since 1940. So that's the hidden fourth forest 
up there. Yeah. And then Ocala National Forest is uh, 386,000 acres, so it's about 500 square miles, and that's not the biggest. So. What is the biggest in Florida? The Apalachicola National Forest. Really? Mm-hmm. But Ocala's the granddaddy, right? Isn't Ocala the, yeah. one of the oldest in the East Coast? Yeah. Or the, East of the Mississippi? We call the Eastern National Forest the lands nobody wanted because most of them um, had fallen into public domain as, during the Depression. And they had been cut over, grazed over, basically turned into deserts. You know, you just see seas of stumps, no wire grass left because of the grazing, the unmanaged grazing, and the, the huge um, just blowouts of, of ravines in the soil that wasn't tended. So most of the East was a restoration story. The Ocala was, they couldn't be homesteaded by the settlers. So no one was making any taxes on it. People would try and homestead. You can't, you can't live in the scrub. So it fell into public domain and um, got thrown in with the big, beautiful Western National Forest in the Midnight Signing Deal by Teddy Roosevelt. So it got snuck in there when everyone else went home for the holidays, and he got us pushed through with the big ones out west, the, the big, beautiful vistas. But we think our majestic sand pine is pretty gorgeous in its own right. Yeah, you know, I've not seen the pictures of, say, the Ocala National Forest. It was all cut over, but I have seen Pisgah. Which, when you drive through the Pisgah National Forest now, and there's trees as big around as, as this room, you know, and, the, and massive, old, what looks like old growth forest. And then, you know, you, you pull up to a sign and they show what it looked like in 1910, and it was just stumps. It, it's uh, amazing that our grandparents really, you know, they saw how bad America got. And they, they fought in, you know, literally some of these acts took decades to get through Congress and Senate to give us what we have today. Even the Wilderness Act, I think, took 30 or 40 years before that got passed. But now we all take it for granted. It's, it's a shame. I mean, like, the Ocala National Forest specifically, I spent so much time there as a teenager, whether it was fishing or camping or just wandering around the woods, because I always grew up in the area we're in right now. I, I was 20 minutes away, 20, 30 minutes away. So we're always out there wandering around doing something, whether it was uh, hunting or searching for geocaches or going out on the beautiful lakes out there. Mm. I might have to just bleep that part out and keep that a secret. But yeah, um, <laughs> it, we, we always spent time out there and I still do today. I take my kids out there. We go out there and fish and swim and just enjoy being in the woods. It's nice to have that piece literally right down the road. And yes. I don't know. I guess as a kid, as a, as a kid, I took it for granted too. But now, I mean, I hate to see what people do to that place. Yeah, we'll get to that one later. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get around <laughs> to that one a little bit. When uh, actually, when we did, I'll try our, not to cry. <laughs> we did our cleanup. We were uh, we made it to the south end of the forest before the end of the cleanup. And a gentleman was actually telling us about the town of Kismet. You know, I've, I've always known Kismet, but he started telling us about the town of Kismet. And then I started doing some research on it. And I was like, this is actually really, like, to look at this area now, like, you would never guess that there was a whole town here. Like, people mm-hmm. actually tried to settle here. Yeah, we can walk around in the woods in the middle of, it seems like nowhere, and it was St. Francis. Yeah. So yeah. we have a few of those. So what were they doing? Were they... Were they turpentine or, or? They were resorts. So Kismet oh. and then um, Curse City on the mm-hmm. north of Salt Springs were resort towns. And St. Francis was uh, 
we didn't have um, the railroad yet, so the St. Johns River was the main thoroughfare, basically. Everything was being barged, and so everyone who had pigs and cattle would run them up to St. Francis to get loaded up, and there was a uh, big watermelon fields out there. You can still see, it looks like we bedded the timber, but it was old watermelon fields that we had planted across. Yeah, so from what I had read, essentially like the state said, hey, you can take these parcels and if you can maintain them and farm them, homestead them for a certain period of time, that parcel's yours. So people essentially came in and started farming those parcels or attempting to farm those parcels. Yeah, it sounded easy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, can't you go wander out in the middle of the woods now in July <laughs> with no air conditioning. The scrub yeah. didn't take to farming. Yeah. I and mean, the Spanish tried olives. They tried citrus. It's it's a long ways down before there's any water. So yeah. there's a, a special, and we'll we'll talk about that later because you know foresters and biologists, the the wonder of the scrub that is so tough and resilient to me, you know, it just speaks Florida cracker down to its bone you know it's like what a tough place yeah so when we talk about management of these forests in in Florida what does that actually consist of it is like managing a city because there's a lot going on we you know we have 16 million people in a, a short drive you know a lot of day trippers um, over a million to two million visitors a year so there's the infrastructure part and then all the the old farms that got split up and turned into subdivisions where there's now small homes just crammed in in these neighborhoods um, like there's 48,000 homes within our proclaimed boundary divided into maybe a dozen dozen and a half neighborhoods out there and then they all want the roads which is the counties you know we we don't do public roads um, our roads are for our jobs and so there's a lot of tension uh, that we have to keep navigating and working with other um, entities like the counties and, and DOT and, and the state. Um, then there's the, the land management. And everything we do, because you'll, you'll get some folks saying, well, you guys just destroy the forest. Everything we do is a mimic of the ecology. So when we prescribe burn, with all these roads, all these homes, the, the normal lightning strikes that would light Florida and then just punk around for weeks and weeks and weeks and flare up and go out and flare up, that's all been removed. So we're the lightning. We're the ones putting fire on the ground. Florida needs fire like it needs sunshine and water. If you don't have fire, you lose everything you love about Florida, except everything upland anyway. And then um, the timber that we remove. Sand pine's a short-lived tree. It won't make it past 60 years old. So we're just capturing mortality. Back in the day, you'd have 100-foot flames sweeping through, wiping out giant areas. Well, we do it instead of having catastrophic wildfires. We, and we do it planned, and we do it in balance. So we become what the catastrophic wildfires were, so that ecosystem can regenerate the way it historically did. And the longleaf, you don't see us clear-cutting longleaf. The longleaf, we capture some mortality, will thin. We'll take out those those younger trees that would get um, outcompeted by the big mature trees anyway and keep that ground cover which is what really you know a lot of the game that you guys are interested in is you need a lush productive ground cover when especially in the winter and the spring when deer are pregnant when they're lactating and we make more acorns than any place in North America I'm not worried about having <laughs> oaks on this forest we are an oak machine but we if we don't burn and we don't um, get the brush and the uh, 
the um, smaller pines out, you're not going to have what you need for spring and summer wildlife. So you mentioned longleaf a couple times, and as I understand it, that was the dominant pine throughout the southeast, right. basically until Europeans showed up and used it for everything. And my house is built out of it. And But it, it takes forever to get those big mast-like trees. So when I say mast, I don't mean acorn mast. I mean like ship masks. I understand they used to make yep. ship masts out of them. But is the, in Ocala, are, when you remove the sand pines, can you replace them with longleaf or no. different ecology? Different soil types and different water table. So yeah. longleaf is going to need to be able to get water within 20 feet of the soil surface. When you go out in the big scrub in a 136-foot sand dune, there's no water. Sand pine catches water with like a network of uh, netting of roots. So it's, it's adapted for this really, really dry peak of a sand dune. If, if you think about Ocala National Forest, it was the northernmost Florida Key. It came, it is. It, it, we were a shallow ocean, and as the glaciers captured all the water, and the oceans were dropping, and plus the weight of the gate, glaciers, they kind of tip the plate. Mm -hmm. So you'll see like the Lake Whale Ridge kind of rose up, and we rose up, and you know, lots of, um, this Pliocene, Miocene, lots of uh, sand dune formation, right? And then the rivers on either side of our forest, that was all our old shoreline. And so you can kind of look at a topo map and you go, oh, that was islands. And our, our ancient history is just fascinating. And then how that dictates the, the vegetation. So as you come up from the rivers, and you see our central fire tower on 40, that's like the peak of the forest. That's the high point of the island. But the, the big scrub in the center is, is going to be scrub. It'll always be scrub. And, you know, there's nothing else that can make it like scrub. Yeah, I was going to, um, she, she touched on some very interesting points or pertinent things that um, we talked about planning and management. So we actually do have a, a, a forest plan that a um, little bit outdated, but we're working on, um, you know, we have a great thing about the Forest Service. We have research division, like a, um, we have researchers and they constantly research new things and they give us new, you know, direction. So we have um I believe seven research centers across the nation. Um, they're spread out. They have like we have one for forest products in Wisconsin, and they do different things and they give us advice. So by the time the forest plan is done again, we have new guidance kind of to help us with that. So we don't just go out and willy nilly do stuff. It's stuff that's been um, thought about very carefully and planned, and then it goes into our forest plan. And then that forest plan is a document that we usually it's supposed to be about ten year life span that we we go through and we we try to meet the, the objectives we have future de desired conditions that we want to meet as far as um, how much long leaf is left or how much sand pine or um, even recreation, how you're recreating amongst all of that. You know, we have that's even planned out, even to the amount of special use permits that are issued for photography, for apiary. So all that stuff is planned out and to, to make it, and it should be sustainable. We're trying to make it to where, you know, we don't lose a resource by allowing such things to happen on the forest. So there is plans. And then we also have, um, we're talking about acts or whatnot. We have um, one of our, the plan comes forth through NEPA, which is, um, it was 1969 when that was introduced. And that, that allows you guys, the public, to be able to help us um, make those changes on the ground or just help us. Because sometimes we, like Carrie's wildlife biologist, um, that's where she's educated and I'm a forester. 
even though I don't do forestry as much as I, I don't do it at all, really, but that's my background. And when we get to the table, you think about what you know. You pull upon what you know, what you were educated in formerly, and you, sometimes you forget about other stuff. We can have tunnel vision, so it's good sometimes for somebody from the public to call us out, be like, oh, you know, let's think about this another way. And we're as responsible stewards. We're, you know, our job is to look at those comments they give us and go back and make some changes if we can. Or say, hey, this is why we came up with this this answer or this this decision. So it's not like we're just doing things willy nilly. We are just, you know, we it's very well thought out and planned. I know the public gets upset with us. We move a little slow, but it is um, it, it, it's for the better because it's all of us. It's my land as well as it is anybody else's. So we want to make sure it's there for for everyone. So she, when she said NEPA, that's the... Um, oh, National Environmental Protection Act of 1969. You mentioned sometimes the public gets frustrated, and you referred to it as, well, we move a little slow. And I get it because there's a federal nature and things like that, but how frustrating is that in a place like Florida where there's the population's expanding, we have roughly 300, just under, just over 300,000 people a year, right? Which means every three years we take in a state that has the same population as Wyoming, right? So when you lay out a 10-year plan, how frustrating is it when you know that you're laying out five years in advance the start of the 10-year plan, knowing by the time you get to the end of the 10-year plan that we could have millions of more people in the area than when you started? I think the federal government being slower than local governments is actually protective. Those acts take decades to get passed and it no politician can just come in and undo them and we could have local governments different governors counties and they're having a lot more turnover and they're like hey we want this now we want that now this is the new flavor of the month this is what's going to get me elected in four years and we are so less vulnerable to that so our, our governance you know the endangered species act the national heritage protection act the wilderness act no one can get voted in and do those quick. So our forest plan, which cre- is created slowly, takes a lot of public input. Um, it's not a vote. I mean, you might have a lot of Floridians that say pave over the whole thing and want to put up condos. We belong to the entire nation and future generations. So the fact that we do move slow, make sure we also don't move stupidly. So I, I like working for federal government for that reason. It is, it's slow to make the shift. You're turning the Titanic. But it also keeps you from having unintended consequences because with slow, you also have a lot of thought, a lot of input, and as Tony mentioned, best available science. So how does that <clears throat> how does that coordination go with uh, other like state and local agencies that you guys work with? Well, for endangered species, you know, we, we all have our roles and responsibilities. So it's um, you know, just, just as we have multiple disciplines within the U.S. Forest Service that we have our expert advisors in all areas, you know, engineering and business management, and computer management and forestry and ecology and botany, wildlife, fisheries, all that, we're at the table together. Well, then we have these larger counterparts. So with endangered species, that's all under U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. With hunting and fishing, that's all under the Florida um, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission or our bear management. We manage the habitat, they manage the wildlife, but we do it in concert. And um, uh, with uh, wildfire as well as prescribed fire, we have agreements with at least 12 agencies because everyone has to burn Florida, and so we all cooperate, help each other. Uh, DOTs, you know, the county and the state, um, we coordinate to make sure that they don't... um, 
really detract from what we're looking for or like I was part of the committees that became this helped us become a scenic byway that involved counties and the state so there's always con coordination for everything we do and it helps us all lift the load together um, it's called shared stewardship but it's probably our partnerships and especially in Florida I think we are, have some of the more vibrant partnerships with all of our local governments. And now and then you get someone who, you know, is up for election and they have something they really want to push through quickly. And, and that's okay, too. That's a, a chance to listen and say, well, I'm, we can't do it fast. But when we do it, if it's the right thing to do, we'll do it right. Um, there's also a lot of opportunities to engage with like groups like you. Um, we have... You know, the Scenic Byway is interested in maybe seeing our central fire tower restored and being part of that with the National Forest Foundation that gets funding from um, all kind of corporations to do good things. And, you know, when, when you go online and you see, hey, you can, if you do this thing, you get to plant a pine. Well, they, they really do get us planting pines. And, you know, that's money that comes yep, to yep. us for restoration. Yep, I get to use that money for um some of my environmental ed yeah. conservation programs. Yeah, so those so pennies, those penny pines are, are a good thing. I've seen a lot of money come through through the years from that. So it's pretty cool. You, you've touched on a couple of things that this might be a little controversial and I don't want to sound like I'm sneaking up on either. So we can even edit this out if we need to. But you talked about uh, endangered species. You talked about controlled, uh, I'm sorry, prescribed fire. Uh, and we've been talking about elections. And, you know, right now there is a movement that just got launched where there's groups trying to move constitutional amendments that will make prescribed fire really challenging, if not impossible. And also, this is my opinion, this isn't anybody else's in the room opinion, but also playing pretty dirty with regards to the future management of black bears in Florida by lumping them in with a number of species that already see, receive federal protection. And I'm wondering, I assume that you do have some thoughts on that, or, or you know, but whether you whether you can share sure, them, sure, I can. And whether it's all science based, I'm good. Bingo. That, that's exactly. Oh, that's perfect. That's exactly how <laughs> I would love that question. Okay. Because I have biases, but and, and I try to do homework, but I'm I'm not a biologist, right? And you, know, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. So sure. please, you know, <laughs> I, I'm trying well, to learn at the same time. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. And there's a spectrum, and we have to respect the spectrum of of. Um, not just opinions, but also values, right? So mm -hmm. there are some people, as a biologist, scientifically we're concerned about populations and, and population welfare, population stability and growth. If you, as a, a biologist, are solely focused on how an individual is doing or feels or experiences the world around them, um, and, and nature is a hostile thing, I, I that will keep you from doing what is best for a population. So just like the land is for the greatest good, the greatest good is also for our native species. And that doesn't mean that one animal isn't gonna suffer. I mean, animals eat each other, things happen. Fire is a natural part of our landscape. We know this. Um, so your unintended consequences, what happens if you aren't burning enough uh, wildlife is run by bioenergetics. It's what are the plants, the vegetation, the food chain that relies on that vegetation, what is it capable of? And in Florida, if you don't have fire, you collapse it. So you have more and more acreage providing for less and less species. I don't want to see bears starve. So regardless of 
of fire. And could we burn all summer long? We don't have enough resources to burn Florida. And Florida should be getting four to five million acres burned every year to be at the ecological state that it used to be in. We are never going to have that many firefighters here, especially in summer, especially when there's catastrophic fires out west. So it, it's the human influence has changed how and when we burn. So for us to burn and keep smoke off the highways, make sure we don't have school buses wrecking, there's going to be these, these decisions we have to make. The one thing that we know we're doing is we've been burning in Florida before anyone else was prescribed burning. We are the cradle of prescribed fire. We do have the experts in the state. And we've done it so long, and yet populations and wildlife are increasing. We haven't yeah. burned anything away. We've only burned it to grow. So the more we do for vegetation, the more we're doing for the species that depend on it. And yeah, someone's someone's going to get hurt sometime. It happens, and, and you know, they're not saying that's okay. But the cost of starvation as an indirect or cumulative effect is not okay. I'm not, as a biologist, I can't sit back and let that happen. So I've always heard sometimes that like the burning actually causes some plants to seed properly. Is that a true thing? That's very true. Yeah. Some, yeah. um, some, we have some, some seed that will never, if they, some of them are rottenness. And so when fire hits them, they're able to, to spread their seeds. So fire, you know, we need the fire. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm fortunate that we work in Florida and not California. So when I was, I worked in California for a while and it's, they were happy. We could do all this burning here, get to get in a helicopter and burn from the helicopter underground. They were excited about burning a pile that they had been covered up for like three years with paper. I mean, so we, we have the public that really supports, you know, our burning. They're, they're used to it. They understand it. Um, um, smoke management is one of our biggest things, and we're, we're good at it. Just like um, you go to the doctor, they write prescriptions. Our fire, our fire um, prescribed burning is written, it's called a prescription, where you go out, they look at the, they, they do a lot before, before they even light a match, strike a match. They're looking at the wind, they're looking at the weather, they're thinking about historical things that could have happened, they're going back, checking all that stuff. Um, it's signed by everybody, every discipline. So... Carrie would sign it as 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 line as a line officer, um, special uses person signs, a recreation person signs, the archaeologist. So everybody signs off on that plan prior to it being you know executed. So it's, it's vetted across disciplines, but it also uses some of the most advanced modeling that there is between meteorology, understanding fuels, understanding the energy release component, the burning index, the you know what is the live woody fuel moisture. It's our ability in our agency is, I mean, we're, we're like the best in the world. I, so what do you say? We're so smart. When, when, as layman, because I, I can't fall back on my biology degree or anything like that. I'm just another chucklehead out there in the woods. And, and sportsmen or, or just other environmental advocates, sometimes when I'm having these conversations with folks and you explain, try to explain that the people that are making these decisions you know, didn't just wander off their porch and start, start lighting things on fire, right? That there's a lot of science and a lot of thought, and there's a there's a goal to be achieved that's, that's kind of laid out. You start with the end in mind and then work backwards into the solution as to when and what day and what conditions need to exist before you start laying down fire. It, it is right. a, an exactly. extreme science. It is. And, um, and, and it takes a lot of experience because just just those intuitions and hunches of someone who's been burning for 20 years, and you know, they're letting 
30 to 55,000 acres of year on a, a year, and they're going back and monitoring it. And the wildlife biologists are going out there. We're looking at it. Did some some of these rare plants require smoke on the seed, not just the heat? Mm -hmm. There's to Germany. You know, yeah, there's a, there's smoke-based plants in the scrub, and so it's, it can be very small effects, or it could be an avoidance. Maybe you want to make sure you don't have smoke on this historic structure because you don't want that creosote to build up on that old building, yeah. or you know. So there's a lot of nuance to make sure that we don't screw up. And that's a lot of pressure on these people who are involved in this. But um, I can look at our track record and I, it's nothing but proud. Um, I don't wanna be on fire like out west. And anytime someone starts taking us away from a right to burn state and having all the political support that we have, do you really want to stop it here? We get more lightning strikes than almost any place in North America. We have vegetation that is made of volatile oils and waxes that promote fire. Is this really the place to start curtailing what's been successful for a hundred years? <laughs> it's yeah. like that, you know, it's, it's from people who haven't been around it enough or they're, they're in Orlando in, a, in subdivisions covered with turf grass and landscape plants from other places that are so disconnected that if they care about anything that's wild, you're gonna put fire on the landscape. Yeah, yeah I could, I could geek out of this. I could talk about controlled burns and beer management. We got two or three podcasts just in that. Absolutely, we'll, yeah. we'll start putting people to sleep if we go down, if we let me run it. So I, I tell you, I would move love, on. I would love to dedicate an entire podcast to controlled burns because that is something that has always fascinated me. See, it fascinates some us. Great people for you to yes. talk to, and we it fascinates us too. I know um, every time we get excited because, like you were talking about before, being able to to work outside. And unfortunately, we don't get to work outside as much as we want to. We're, we're, we're stuck in the office. You yeah, moving. Your, all your most fun work is when you're in your 20s, and then you take on more responsibility, and it has to do with the budget, and more responsibility has to do with answering telephone calls from people. And before you know it, you're you're sending your people out to do the work you used to do. So, so when we're asked or able to go out and put on our gear and go out and do something to support. Um, prescribed burning or a wildfire we're really excited it's 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 like a kid you're like you it's because it all comes together so perfectly and you we have such brilliant people that we work with no matter what their um like their their level if they're a technician or considered a professional they're just they're to me they're all really smart like I've never worked on a, a, a forest that had people that were just just dedicated and proud of what they do and that makes a difference. You know, I feel totally safe when I go out with them. I, I know that they're going to do the right thing. They're going to make the right decisions to keep us all safe so we can all get back home to our families and to protect the public. We don't want to put smoke on different um, areas. We know we, we pretty much know where smoke sensitive areas are and they know we know what to expect. We know what to go out and check before we, we start burning, you know, um, as far as. Red cockade woodpecker trees. We know where to rake. We know exactly what to look for. They've been doing it so long, it just it just comes very natural. But it's it's always fun to get out there and and burn with them. So going back to another point you made. So here I am preaching the the need of fire in Florida. Prescribed fire done right for all the right reasons, and that growth of Florida is. She mentioned smoke sensitive areas. So some more schools, some more school buses, some more retirement communities, all that starts making burning harder. So making burning harder by population growth is already happening and then adding other constraints because you know you, you want it to be under certain conditions that you feel are the best 
and I don't mean us, I mean the public. Mm -hmm. If someone starts shutting the window, it's like the window is already closed because there's areas we can only burn with the north wind for three days. How often does that happen? You know, it's only going to happen in the winter. You're not going to get to do the June burn on that area because of all the homes or because of the school. Well, so the more growth we have, just you know, the point being, the more growth we have, the more that science of burning is going to start having to wiggle around and get tighter and tighter. It so makes we us have a, be more creative with that work. Yeah. We met several of your fire crew when we were out doing the Gobblers for Garbage trash pickup. Maybe we can, Tony, if we can lean on you, maybe hopefully yeah. we can actually bring some of those folks in here and really focus on that at another time if that's all they right. Would, they would love it. <laughs> I think they would love, as long as you don't put a camera in their face, I think they're okay. Oh, that's <laughs> okay. okay. So our agency does tend to get a lot of extrovert, introverts. We're like the two in the, out of 65 that are extroverted. But we, um, we have a couple folks that are natural teachers, and we'll talk about that later, um, who, some folks that I would be really comfortable having these conversations and um, can promote exactly yep. what they're doing and tell the story. So you mentioned earlier the red-cacated woodpecker. Um, you mentioned scrub, I assume scrub jays are in there. What, what other endangered species and, and what other species are really dependent on the forest that are of species of concern that... Um, I mean, I know that some of the things you're doing, you're certainly not trying to decimate those species, but what are you doing to help increase those species? I guess that's the long question is what are they and what do you do and help them out? Okay, I guess this one's going to me because it's been most of my career. Um, so the poster children are always going to be what people see is the most obvious. So things that people love to see. At one time, if you remember, the Florida black bear was a state-listed uh, species. Sure. So... The great acorn pump of the Ocala National Forest has definitely been um, huge in getting that species recovered. It was a recovery story, um, very successful. Along with the acorn pump story is where do we get acorns? So right from oaks. Well, our oaks in the scrub, this is the big scrub, and you see those, those weedy sand pines that only get to be 60 years old. Our ancient forest is actually the scrub oaks because you're just seeing part of the tree the the root doesn't die you can cut that because it's it meant it's evolved for these catastrophic wildfires so the oak ha is suppressed by those sand pines you take the sand pines off and someone's going to look at it and go well, that looks ugly you know it's this big field or you burn it and it's all these scraggly little sticks well they're making acorns only three years huge amounts of acorns three years after we clear cut or we prescribe burn that scrub because it's that ancient root stock that's there it's almost like having the trees underground and you're just seeing the branches so they're just waiting for the chance to have all the sun and the water they want while the sand pines are gone and that first 12 years after either a catastrophic wildfire or a clear cut is when they're making their most acorns that's when it's also most valuable to all of our endangered species we are Noah's Ark. We are the last stronghold for almost all species that depend on scrub. And the cutting and the burning is what makes that possible. Because once the sand pine's over top of it, the endangered species are done. It makes great bobcat denning habitat. It makes bear denning habitat. But aside from rare lichens, 
pretty much the rare part for all the habitats, all that young stuff. When you when you walk through our scrub and you gotta go hunting and the scrub is like walking through blueberry bushes, mm -hmm. that's they're like blueberry bushes. There there's three different species that are bushed out and then you have the turkey oak. Those scrub oaks, when they're in that blueberry bush size, are just pumping acorns and they even come in at different times of year. So, you know, we have the um, sand live oak and we have um, Chapman's oak and Myrtle oak. They each have a phase. So you have a continuum of nut production from August to December. I don't know anywhere else that's doing that. And especially at that density. I mean, it's just a forest. It's a shrub forest of acorn production. And then it also has the bare sand, which is where all the rare plants are. That's where the rare reptiles depend on that. I can get cool under an oak, I get hot out in the sand, I get cool under an oak, I go back out in the sun, and they have their little little poikilotherm dance that they're doing. So it's that scrub management, that spectrum of scrub management is what makes us be the stronghold for all those species that evolved here in those ancient times before the glaciers. It's, it's pretty cool, I'm pretty proud of it. <laughs> and there's no other place on earth. I mean, we talk about Ocala National Forest. There is no place like this. It is rare and unique unto the whole planet. There's no other big scrub anywhere. It's amazing. And it's, it's beautiful. And then you have those islands of longleaf and wiregrass. And they have the plant diversity. So you have all those rare species in the scrub. And then you have this tremendous biodiversity in the grassland. It's a grassland with trees. And that grassland is chock full of hundreds of species. Huge amounts of diversity of plants in there. And rare birds, it's just, it's just so magical. And the longleaf is just an amazing tree. It can take everything. We get hurricanes and tornadoes and it's so tough. No wonder it was a ship mast. It's, you know, yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't put a nail in my house. You gotta go and get get a metal drill to try and get into your heart pine walls. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is tough. It'll bend a nail trying to hammer one into the to a heart pine beam. So you're living in an older home that was 1947. Built by it was wow. probably built right off of Paisley Woods That's when they awesome. were milling it. Yeah, back then you had to have a 12 inch by 12 inch chunk of heart pine for it even to be a merchantable tree. The stuff that we call two by fours today was just burn to, to drive, drive the mill for the steam. The slash pine and yellow and... Um... No, they has heart, slash, slash pine has heart too. Okay. It just takes, it's just slower. It yeah. just, you know, the long leaf is the one that, that came up big and yep. we have, but we love slash pines. There's nothing wrong with slash. I'm not gonna talk bad about slash. No, all pine <laughs> trees are good and they're you know, balanced. <laughs> and they're, they are, yeah. they are. But no, I mean, slash can get a heart in it too. It just takes a lot longer. Yeah. So, is, is loblolly also native to Florida, or is that an import? It's not an import, but in Florida, it was naturally more of a wetland tree. Okay. So when you get up into Georgia and South Carolina, well, that Piedmont has a lot of clay in it, mm -hmm. so it keeps a very moist soil environment. Florida's sand, so loblolly was a lot more constrained. and There was never, like, giant forests of loblolly south of St. Mary's River. So what are the greatest threats facing... Florida's forest today? All forests or our forest? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, population. The pop all the ills of the population. Um, the, I mean, out west, you, you know, everywhere else you can see that all the effects of changing climate, the, 
you know, hotter, drier periods that are longer. The, you know, when it does rain, it rains more catastrophically or they're not getting the snowpack that a lot of their ecosystems depend on. Florida, having come in and out of the ocean so many times and been hot and wet and cold and everything, like a lot of the effects of climate have already been ameliorated by our evolution in Florida. A lot of the species just have great resilience in the state to a lot of, and like I said, it's tough. It's a tough ecosystem throughout the state. It's not very fragile. Um, but then the, the population, you know, the drawdown of the aquifers, the, um, the overloving, the recreational overuse is just, you know, strips off fragile vegetation. It, our soils are very fragile in this state. And when they get stripped by tires or um, other kind of damage or our eelgrass being stripped and, you know, just a lot of feet, a lot of needs, a lot of demands, and um, it starts affecting everything. And the invasives, the Kogan grass, the Japanese climbing fern, the Old World climbing fern, mm -hmm. the pests, the, the Asia ambrosia beetle the, that came in, um, that ambrosia beetle just wiped out all our bays. And, you know, it's... We are, bay we are, trees, you mean? Hmm? Bay trees? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. yeah, all the bay trees. And it affects our Florida avocado crop, too. So the huge amount, I mean, Florida is the worst place in our nation for invasives. And all those invasives have an impact. You all know what's going on with pythons in the Everglades. And it just we just keep saying, I guess, this is our new normal. You know, it just becomes, but it becomes what people quit caring because they drive by that field of coke and grass enough years in Marion County and they don't know it doesn't belong and that it's destroying everything around it. It's like the seventh worst plant on earth. It's tough. I couldn't, you know, I'm embarrassed. I try to step. I have no idea what that even looks like. I wouldn't know if it did. Uh, you I would. Have, I have a whole yard full of it. It <laughs> looks like a solid <laughs> monoculture of a big fat grass. If you touch it, it cuts you. It's got silica in it. I know it. what that is. You do know what it is. And it chokes everything else. It has 15 allelopathic compounds that kill everything. The lowly broom sedge can hold itself against it, but it'll take all the nitrogen and all the water. And basically, it is just a destroyer. It's god-awful. Yep. It challenges my garden every year. Yeah. <laughs> is it, uh, can it be cured, for lack of a better word, with fire? Or is it also something no. where the tubers just survive? And yeah, everything that's invasive <clears throat> has got a stronghold because it can handle what Florida throws at it. It means it came from a fire-adapted system itself. It's, um, yeah, well, there's nothing easy we can do. We gotta use chemicals, or else you gotta bury it under about four feet, and you know, smother it for enough years. But it's, there's some pernicious evil, they're not evil, I mean, they don't have a personality, but <laughs> what they do to our Florida is just catastrophic. So, so what, do you, what do you think are the threats? Like, what do you, um, I'm curious, you said that you grew, up, you grew up on 20 minutes from the forest. What changes have you seen? Because I'm just curious. I know that you have to see more people than you've seen when you were growing up. So what do you think are some of the threats that we might have as um, managers of the forest? I want to say outside of being managers of the forest, something that I've noticed growing up was, I want to, not necessarily a mass influx, but the impact that like the beetles and the pines have made because I've seen just as I've gotten older how many pines are just slowly dying from being eaten. I mean I've sat in the woods before and you can literally hear the beetles eating the pine trees and that comes from stress you know the 
the beetles only go to trees that, that are stressed, you know, that are having problems, which could come from a number of different things. Um, it could be, it could be um, the soils have been stripped. It could be different things. It could be big compacted drought soils, periods. droughts. So we, we get big beetle kills after the, the droughts are really yeah. severe. But yeah, they don't go to the healthy trees. So that's, that's a, another, I guess, a threat that could be to um, what we do as, a, as a managing. I don't know if you guys know um, that the Forest Service, we actually put money into the Treasury. So the cutting down the trees, you know, that's we're one of the few, the few federal agencies that actually put money back into the Treasury through our, um, our trees that are cut down and our special uses. So it is important to what we do to be able to properly, you know, get the get merchantable timber and stuff. So the but I mean, I mean, when I first started with the Forest Service, it was a big, it was a big drought. Um, in the night, what nineteen was it nineteen ninety eight? Oh, when the southern pine beetles came in in ninety nine. Yeah. So yeah, we had the big droughts in the nineties. So my first job was marking a lot of timber in South Carolina. <laughs> At the same time, I was pregnant, so it was very, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. But we spent, we worked twelve hours a day trying to stay ahead of it, actually, to get out far, far enough to cut enough know a ring around it to stop them from spreading so it is a it's a serious you know threat and it was a lot of work you know um i was tired so yeah. <laughs> it was a yeah. lot but i learned a lot then too that was that was a fun part of my job i wish i could do that again that was yeah. fun <laughs> and i know like we could do a whole nother episode on it as well but you guys have talked about special use permits as well and i know like people going out and just riding in the woods and you get people that go off trails and just drive i mean through the trees Oh, you're gonna. Yeah. You could do a whole yeah. episode on unmanaged. Yeah, that's yeah. unmanaged recreation. That's one of like when we our, our one of our formal chiefs he came up with um, threats, and one of them was unmanaged recreation. So we consider that unmanaged because we we have trails, designated trails. We have designated sites for different things. We have a lot of designation, and when you decide to just go off the, the on your own, make your own trail, it's it's unmanaged and. It's hard for us to to stay on top of that and to to explain to people, yes, this beautiful secret lake you have out there is there, but you know you can't just you can't know. I mean, maybe you did it for years before we changed our management, before we came up with different, before we were able to get the science and the knowledge behind to make different decisions to close things down. Yeah, you were, you you did that for years. You drove out in the woods and from your backyard, but we can no longer continue to allow people to do that and sustain the resource. It won't be there for future generations. It's going to erode down. We're going to lose certain species that no one even knows about. You know, we just can't continue to do the same thing we did for a long time ago. Right. People, <clears throat> well, we used to do this for years. Yeah, it was sustainable when there was three people doing it for yes. years. Right. Now there's 3,500. That's the question I was trying to get you guys yeah. to see. Yeah, like, if you saw more people out there. Or that's yeah. exactly where the, I was The trash. You it's, never... it's, it's a... Uh, it's it's really a generational thing, right? Because there's people that'll say, "Well, I used to do it this way when I was a kid," or "This is how my dad did it," or so on and so forth. But it's the we take it for granted, yeah. right? We take the resource for granted. Like it, you grow up; it's always been there the entire time I was growing up. So, why is it? It's not necessarily wrong of me to assume that it'll always be there, right? But if we don't take care of it, that's not the case. I think there's that. Um Again, that, you know, legacy, and you think that you can do something because Florida was the way it was. So I, we kind of, we talk to hunters a lot about this, or we talk about the folks that say, I used to do this. Well, sometimes people's memories aren't always accurate because I happen to know how many four-wheel drives used to be up there. 
Uh, the fact that four-wheel drive is now affordable and every 15, 16-year-old is getting a four-wheel drive something or other, it's like, okay, you guys didn't used to do this. Maybe your dad had a Jeep or something he rebuilt, but it wasn't all five kids in the family had it, you know? And right. how, how many people had OHVs when they were little? You guys, some of you are younger than me, but I didn't see really ATVs coming out until the 80s and 90s. So I know your grandpa didn't go ATV yeah. around the forest, so <laughs> put that lie away, you know? And, and just even when someone say, I know that I used to always ride that road. Well, we got aerial imagery, and I'm happy to pull it up and go, which road do you think you used to ride? Because I just see hundreds of acres of woods where you said that road was. And you guys went on a stand boundary or a fire line, you turned it into a road. So so there's that that memory shift, because really, when you were 12, did you really know always where you were, or did Dad take you? <laughs> so I get that pressure you know, from folks all the time telling me how it was or how they... Because whatever they're doing illegally now, they want to say it should be fine. Right. The other thing, like you said, it. How many people? You know, we we are getting millions of people a year. How many people can go cross country? And everyone, I know what I was like as a teenager. I want my own piece of paradise. I want to get away from. I don't want to be on a trail with everybody else. I want to go out with my friends and do my thing. And you know, it's everyone's gonna want to do that. Well, if everyone does it, you're gonna have nothing left. Forgive me if my facts are off a little bit, but I was listening to something they were talking about, you know, 1880s at the time, and it had to do with the some of the uh, disagreements between the Native American population and, and civilization. It was, it was moving west. And they were talking about the numbers, and what I thought I heard was that they said um, just how few Natives there were, but versus the 21 million Americans at the time. And that was a huge number compared to the amount of Native Americans. But I went, 21 million, that, that's Florida. right? So if, if, if my numbers are off, forgive me, but if that number, because I, I, that makes sense, that there may have been 21 million people in the United States in 1880, so we're 150 years forward, and there's 21 million people just here. And they were already put saying there's not enough land, and we have to take displace right. you and yeah. put you on a reservation because we need more land. And now yeah. the state is that same number. Oh my gosh! It's, it's the new normal, right? Every every what you because you and I are about the same age. What we perceive as normal is slightly different from say Will and Jordan because they're a couple decades younger, right? <laughs> yeah. But then nor, that they're normal compared to their kids normal, you know. But we all think it, this is just how it is sure. without realizing that no, it, it it's constantly changing. But we always want to. You've just touched on that. You want to. You want it to be the way it used to be, and then not only that, we romanticize it. Mm. And that creates all the conflict. But at the same time, as we're hunters, you, know, you, you work to get out there someplace, and you think you're out in the middle of nowhere, and here comes a guy rolling through at 8.30 in the morning with trekking poles. Or if you're in the wrong place, all of a sudden there is a jeeper zipping through, because maybe you didn't realize the proximity to the, yeah. to the jeep trail. And you hear people say, Ah, that guy came along and ruined my hunt. I was like, well, it is public land, and he's doing or she's doing exactly what they wanted to do. And I know you see it as a big inconvenience, but they have every bit of right to be there. And I, I, I can't. I, I was thinking about that the other day. So why do we get so bent out of shape? And I guess it kind of maybe boils down to time, right? Because most, I assume that most people are out there on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody wants to use it on Saturday, but not as many people on Tuesday. 
Right, but if I it's your day and your your event gets screwed up, you're mad at the world, and who do you yell at forestry because you guys are destroying the forest, right? That's what that's what I love about I US, guess. Sorry, not forestry. Yes, <laughs> forest service. Yes, forest service. That's what I love about um, my job, like especially when I did special uses, my primary duties. It's just like um, being an event a planner to merge all these different use groups together, all these people, these different mindsets. And to pretty much, you know, provide good customer service because, you know, um, like you said, they could be having a Jeep ride or something and they could be turkey hunting. And it's like, OK, you got to figure out and communicate to everybody that these two events are going on and that that's OK. Um, and that somebody may be just bird watching and you're just screwing everything up. But it's it's OK. We're a multi-use agency. That's what that's part of our mission is to provide, you know, for everybody to be able to enjoy it at the same time. And you're right. Most people recreate or do their their thing on the weekend when they're off and they spent their money. They bought their gear. They they've traveled to come there and they want to have their unique experience. But you you have other people wanting the same thing. And it's just like I guess that's just living next to a neighbor. It's just what we go through in life. But you don't really. You expect something different when you come to a place you consider to be, you want to be isolated and have your own, your experience. And I think um, it's really neat because different people, different cultures bring, they have different expectations. They have different experiences that they're looking for. So it's it's like we're putting all these different people, all these different, it's like, like the world. You're bringing everybody to one spot because everybody wants to come now. Like we have more people coming now. Um, like just over the years, the demographics have changed a little bit. People are, um, they're learning, like, oh, I want to come to the forest. You know, we have a lot of, international people that come out and want to experience different things but we have to be able to provide everything for everybody while at the same time protecting the resource so it's it's kind of fun it's like planning a huge wedding and you got the people the people that don't fight yes yes (laughs) so it's it's kind of fun sometimes i think it's fun so she is touching also on outdoor recreation management which is a, a you know a department within our agency and for them to try and uh, the, the recreation managers trying to create those experiences and in that we coordinate with the Fish and Wildlife Commission on okay this is a big tourist season we have a lot of folks coming in in March you know you keep any permitted dog trials in this area because most of our campgrounds are in this area or um, you know making sure that p- campers know that it's turkey season and unlike deer season they are not wearing blaze orange so you know, be respectful. If you see a truck parked, you know, maybe that's that's a place you can avoid if you can. Just letting them know because people are going to, it's, there's more and more people who don't hunt. And so when they, um, he, wow, there's airboats and Q-beams going out on those lakes at night. Okay, it's gator season. What? Yeah, it's Florida. We hunt gators. It's gator season. It's August. I didn't even know you could have airboats out on there, you know, let alone at night. But there, it's like it kind of wows them, and we, we have to communicate um, all these things that we're allowing and try to promote respect because you're, you know, like Tony said, there's just like you didn't want to see those trekking poles, that person with the trekking poles that maybe was looking at that scissor tail flycatcher that was in that they just came across the country to see, they probably didn't like you starting a bunch of you know, turkey calls right there and, you know, so it's, it's always that dance is trying to make sure that this is special to everyone. And so with that, it's also that division of designated trails. And you guys are local, you know that our dirt roads have numbers and they're roads. And you get people from our cities and nearby cities 
They go, well, there's no pavement on it, so I was on a trail. I'm like, oh no, that is still a federal road. It had a number, it's not a trail, and they, none of them think that they're off-roading by driving OHVs on, on numbered roads. And the idea is that you, as a hunter, should know where that OHV trail is, and you can either choose to ride your OHV on it, pull over, and maybe hunt off of it if you, say, have a disability, or you can go, I don't want to be around those machines. I'm going to hunt over here in Alexander Wilderness, and then you got a bunch of OHVs coming through and tearing up. In a wilderness, because that'll happen too. You say, is that happening out of ignorance, or is that... Yeah, there's, there's two things. I mean, there's, there's going to be the rebels, and I, yeah, the rebels are often the locals that feel like this is their backyard, this is, this is public land, therefore it's my land, yeah. and I can dictate how this land is, regardless of what the people across the nation felt like it should be. I, it's my backyard, or I live within a few miles... And, I mean, I know these kids know that putting an ATV on a county highway or a state highway is illegal, yet they're doing it. They're, they're riding up from Leesburg on an ATV with their friends on the back, no helmets, you know, four kids on a single. They're just, you know, they're being kids. So there's that, the, the local ownership and rules don't apply to me because I'm a local. And then you have folks that are coming from all over the state that have an idea that you can go ride ATVs on Ocala National Forest Trail. They don't read anything, they don't buy a permit, they don't get the map, they see dirt and that's a trail. Could be a fire line we just plowed because we're burning that day. And they'll come tearing through from Jacksonville, Miami, wherever. And they're just like totally ignorant, didn't do any homework, I just heard. And that's usually what we hear when we write the tickets. Well, I heard on some website, on some social media, some Facebook, <laughs> I heard I could do this. I'm like, well, you heard wrong. Sorry, you shouldn't go to these posts and believe them, you know. So I think it's interesting. She called out my hometown, um, Jacksonville. So from my perspective, I grew up downtown Jacksonville, living in historic district. Um, just, just so happened I was exposed to certain things. But to be honest with you, when I um, got this job, I got interviewed for this job. I was flown in. And the ranger was like, go go check out some of the wreck sites. And I had never been to the Ocala National Forest. And I am from Florida. I went to the University of Florida, had never been on this forest. And so it was a lot. I didn't even know about the springs. It was just, you know, it's just, it, you, know, you know, some people are just, like you were asking about ignorance. You just don't know if you've never been exposed to certain things. You just don't. You never had those experiences to know or to even know to go look for look at the official, you know, our website and not look at other people's things. So it is, it's like where you, you know, like you guys know, cause you've been here, are you, you've, you know, you just have, it's a different perspective of what exposure, I think. So I'm really grateful that, um, that I have the opportunity to, to explain to people the rules um, and to show them where to go to find more information so they can be, you know, you can tell your buddy, you can tell your friend. We don't want to write, we don't, we, we don't educate. We don't want to write tickets and stuff. We really want to be able to, um, we want people to come enjoy the forest and not have a bad time by getting written a ticket or getting hurt, you know, because what you think may be a, a designated route may be a dangerous place to be on, you know, with the OHV or something. Oh, so. geez, even with the vehicles. I mean, I, I think you guys should come up with some catchy line for the gas line because it should be like empty your wallet, get stuck, or you know, because <laughs> the amount of people that got Siri sending them down on, a, um, on the gas line with a sedan, and, you know, someone needs their insulin. You know, they're stuck up to their axles. And then we're trying to get them out. <laughs> yeah, find out that's $500 for a tow truck. 
So there's a lot of reasons for people to know the right way to do things anyway. And today with social media, we can get buried. You can, you can do OHVO Cala National Forest and what's the chance we're going to be the top that you can see? Probably You're probably going to see you know, some other person who's promoting something that they, they shouldn't do. Or you know, even the fact that our, our maps on our phones the, the all we have no control over private enterprise. Sure. So you go to Polaris, Google, Apple Maps, any map you download, the road numbers are from over twenty years ago. We renumbered our roads in two thousand four, so sixteen years ago. Road numbers are over sixteen years outdated. Some of those roads have been closed. They have pines planted on them. Some new roads have been built. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. See, earlier you asked what we thought the greatest threat to the forest was. And, you know, I, I use the term ignorance. And I don't mean that. Say, a lot of times people throw that out as a pejorative term. And when I use the term ignorance, I mean it is the most truest sense of mm-hmm. a genuine sense of not knowing. And all mm-hmm. the things that you're talking about, whether it be transportation or burns or species management or recreational, what was the term you used? Recre- unauthorized recreation? Oh, unmanaged recreation. Unmanaged recreation, right. That it sounds like the greatest threat to all this really is is ignorance, followed by the insolence by the people that know it's wrong and they're going to do it anyway. So the lack of education. Yeah, people not being able to get the information they need to do what they need to do. So for people out there that kind of want to get involved and help with all this stuff, what what are some of the volunteer opportunities that the Forest Service provides? Oh, great. So that's my specialty. <laughs> that's how we met. Yeah. yeah, that's how we met. So we do, like like we met during the cleanup, there's always, um, we, we would love, 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 love to have more local people come out and take that ownership and say, hey, buddy, stop, you know, stop this. You know, I, I spent the whole like three hours picking up your mess, but that's always a great opportunity. We do um, forest cleanups twice a year. We do one um, around Earth Day, and then we do one on Public Lands Day in September. So that's always a good opportunity. Then we have um, groups that can come out and volunteer. We have um, the Jeep Club. They've formed a, a group now, and they're, they're they're taking care of not only their route, um, but they're picking up in other places, picking up trash, and just letting us get and be. We don't have enough people on the ground to be able to cover the whole forest. You know, we're in three, in three counties. And so it's it's a big forest and we don't have enough staff to be everywhere. So those those clubs and whatnot help as well. And then we have our field ranger program that we're just kicking off where if you're a citizen and you wanna come out and help us patrol, um, give us feedback, take notes. If you see a hole here or a sign missing, a stop sign, a road sign, you, you're getting that information back to us and just having more you know, trucks on the ground on the weekends when people are out. Um, that's a way to volunteer. Then we have our, our campground hosts, people that actually stay on us. Um, we've had, when I first got here, we had like 70 volunteers during the winter. Uh, mostly um, people come from up north where they can um, come down and enjoy the, the wonderful winter in Florida. And we have full hookup sites for them. Um, so they're able to bring their RVs and be able to have, you know, full hookups. So they in exchange for 28 hours a week, they get a free place to stay, free power or whatever. I mean, we don't have a, they have to bring their own RV, but they're able to, to volunteer in that capacity. So they're able to be host and um, working with our technicians. They're able to help manage our campgrounds. So we have maintenance people. We have need for carpenters um, to build our signs, to install our signs. We have people that work in wildlife. They do bird counts. They do different things. So there's, you name it, we could probably come up with something for groups to do. Um, we like to, um, we're working hard now to be able to be prepared to have people to have opportunities already ready to go. Um, if it's 
picking, if it's planting trees or if it's, you know, uh, picking up trash or anything else we want to be ready for. But we want people to come. That's a great opportunity to learn what we do because we're all about growing careers. We're not going to be able to work much longer. Um, <laughs> there's no fountain of youth out there. So we want to be able to educate people and encourage different people to um, get the exposure so they won't be the ignorance to see what we're doing. So we encourage different volunteers to come out and do different things. So, Tony, why don't you also tell about the different public land courts? Because we have young people. My son is actually doing Student Conservation Association on National Forest around Lake Superior. So um, there's chances for kids to get some experience, make a little money, and yep. even get um, some scholarship money. Yes, yeah, so we have like, um, like AmeriCorps. We have different... Um, entities we work with so with some of these these programs these student programs that we have they're able to not only um get a stipend get the experience but they're also able to have a competitive edge when they apply for jobs like they want to apply for a federal job um they they have a preference kind of almost like a veteran's preference they 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 can get like they get a few points extra added to their application so it's it's a great thing that's a a great edge because some people um it's hard to get on with the forest service i'm just going to be honest with you it's you have to be you know it's really hard so i think we're very fortunate (laughs) i know i was very fortunate the program i came through that i even had the opportunity to work it's just not that easy anymore those opportunities just aren't out there anymore but we do have our student employee programs we have and we have the Green Youth Program. Um, so we're trying to get, um, trying to reach out to a lot of urban areas to get um, people like myself to be able to, um, who may not have the opportunity to be exposed to it, to consider our, our field um, and natural resources or conservation or being out in you know, forestry. So there's different opportunities for um, all over. There's all kind of um, cores, different kind of cores. I can't even name them all right now, but there's a different, We they, they're beco- becoming more popular. I'm seeing like we're having, they've changed a lot over the year, the names have changed, but there's still great opportunities to get your foot in the door. So the public land cores, if any young person, and I mean young as in under 35, it's I think for um, competitive oh. placement eligibility. <laughs> well, for public land cores. Now I had, did have a public land core fellow that um, was over 35, but he just doesn't get the... Um, the competitive placement because they want to make sure you got like 20 years before you retire they don't want you to work 10 years for the forest service maybe and retire i'm not sure that's maybe we had an older sca on paul remember yeah well we we also had um oh yeah yeah. recently yeah anyways aside from that so if anyone is interested they can look at public land core and there's going to be all type of different agencies that recruit people some of them will say student conservation association but you don't have to be a student we have people that are have worked in the workforce for a long time and we're like i really want to see if this is i've always wanted to be a forester i always wanted to work in outdoor recreation all right i love maintaining hiking trails maybe i want to do this for a living and they can join one of these public land cores most of them are full-time for like a semester sometimes they're 18 weeks sometimes they're 24 weeks but someone can leave school for a period and work in the forest service and see if this is their calling and then there's no big commitment but then they'll also have the best resume because we do everything. You know, so they'll, they'll be shuttled around to help with this, help with that, and it all goes on their experience. And universities, if they're enrolled, could even do an internship. So yeah, they can get credit young for it. can get yeah, internship credits too. So there's a lot of opportunities to find out if this is somebody's calling. And if you're a little in the gray hair crowd, like some of us, <laughs> there's also opportunities to get engaged with... Um, work cores, job cores that are not necessarily for young. So, um, and for veterans, there's always, uh, we can do direct veteran recruitment. So we have the VRA 
for our vets where we can pull people in and um, give them super competitive placement because of the service they provided our country. So there's, there's a lot of ways to get involved. I think our best kept secret is um, the Job Corps. Um, we don't have a local one here, but the Forest Service has the most, um, they own the most Job Corps. So we have, um, they're able, they do different skills too. So we do have some Job Corps that are teaching firefighters. They're producing firefighters. So it's really cool. Forest Service employees work there. They work those students. They have um, nurses that are Forest Service employees that run the centers. They take care of the, um, the kids and they come out with a skill that um, one of our law enforcement officers that used to work here came through that program um barry he's in north carolina right now i believe um but he was a success of that program so it's a it's a great program and it's a best kept secret i think of the agency people just don't put us with the job corps centers so it's pretty cool so what kind of careers are offered in forestry for forestry degrees or you mean u.s forest service u.s forest Forest Service. service okay well um, I'm just thinking of our workforce. If I, if I look around our, our phone list and just who's working for us, we have wildlife biologists, fisheries biologists, there's ecologists and botanists. Um, we have outdoor recreation specialists. Some of them have degrees in forestry. Some have degrees in outdoor recreation or other forms of recreation. So there's a lot of different backgrounds. We have engineers of all types. We have computer technicians and specialists. We have communications specialists for our radio towers. We have an aviation program, and us with the Pine Castle bombing range here, we have probably some of the most advanced um, helicopter managers in probably almost in the agency. Um, all of our firefighters, some have degrees, some, some don't, some have GEDs, um, and basically a lot of the technical, like timber marking, um, firefighting, rec techs, a lot of the technical jobs, people get onboarded because of work experience or military experience, or they just start young as an intern or a, a job corps candidate and get pulled into the agency. So it's, um, you know, we have everything from people with PhDs down to GEDs, and if you can imagine it, it probably gets a job somewhere in mm-hmm. our agency. Because at the higher levels at Washington and region, I mean, you could have artists and photographers and Psychologists. Cartographers. Um, GIS. Medical personnel. Um, yeah. I know I know for the um, critical and, incident And the job course, they um they, they have, have medical. yeah, they have medical people, yeah. Yeah, so it's and then some of the firefighters, depending on what kind of medical, um, EMTs, mm-hmm. some firefighters also have EMT uh, cross designation. So there's just a real variety of um, job sets. Uh, we also have the international USAID yeah. Um, so Forest Service does international work helping Belize restore their mangrove coastline or working with uh, drought-stricken areas in Africa. So there's a lot of um, cross-work. And, and we help um, send folks to Australia for the big fire season mm-hmm. they had last time. Yeah. So if there was a young person that wanted to explore a career with the U.S. Forest Service, what would probably be the slam dunk where there's a shortage? Or is there a shortage? Engineers and uh, everything in timber right now. Uh, it's hard for us to fill all of our engineering positions and our timber positions. Um, those Math are... and backbreaking work makes sense. Well, <laughs> the timber is not. Well, I guess I don't think hiking is backbreaking and taking yeah. data. Look, so some people. Who, I thought it was fun. Some people want to go for a walk in the woods one day a week. Some people think that walking all day in the woods five days a week is just the best thing on earth. 
I was thinking more like harvesting timber and things like that. No, you know, we don't do it by hand anymore. So even the crosscut saw has been replaced by feller punchers and skidders. And and it's the purchasers. I mean, if someone wants to be um, in forestry and be in the harvesting side of it, they're going private sector. They're buying our timber. But uh, we're valuing the timber. So Mm -hmm. timber is money. It's, It's big, tall money. And... Technicians. We've all been to Home Depot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Especially this year. So, um, and most of the sand pines, the sand pines going into your bathroom. That's, um, you know, during, during COVID, the love of toilet paper was pretty high. So here we are growing Florida scrub jays and plenty of acorns and scrub by providing the middle up in black and all the toilet paper you could want made out of sand pine. So, um, they have to value it. They have to figure out how much is out there so they can put together a sale. And and some of it's contracting. Some if you are yeah, contracting not is as, a big need. Yeah, I mean yes. nationally, that's we need contractors. Yeah. So so really, there are the people who think the best job on earth means I'm out in the woods from seven thirty in the morning till five at night, and that's their life. And there's other people who maybe can't get out of a wheelchair and can very well you know work in our contracting offices or do the drafting work. Or I mean, it really is. There is work for everybody and every type of person and personality out there. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. It's just um, the timber marketing thing is not that bad. I loved it. That was one of my favorite jobs. At least you could walk away seeing that you did something because <laughs> you're seeing the paint on the trees. You know, so you it's it's pretty cool. Like I wish um, like my eyes not as good as it used to be. I used to go out there and look at a tree. I could tell you the diameter of it and the height just like that. Like, cause my eye was just that good. I was doing that every single day before I put the paint on the tree. I didn't know we have a certain, you know, whatever class we're supposed to be doing. So you knew exactly what it was. And I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, it was just walking through, you know, with, with your buddies, <laughs> your coworkers. And you just, you know, other than the ticks, it's fun. Like I have no problem. It was, <laughs> the ticks I can do without. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't permanent when we were young. So what is our local branch of the, U.S. Forest Service right here in Ocala National Forest. What do you guys need the most? I think that, um, you know, of course, we could always use more money, more staff, more people um, to do the work. But I think what I've seen change is with the huge growth of Florida, we've also um, lost our interpretive program and our, uh, our visitor centers. So... Um, it was seen by previous elected officials to not be something they, there was a belief that uh, interpretation was now belonged to the national parks, that, that visitors and interpretation and visitor centers and all these amenities for the public to have a guided tour or a visitor center was covered in the national parks. We're in the Department of Agriculture and our job is to Uh, manage land and produce timber and be the nation's emergency response team. In losing any kind of way of having interpretive programs and visitor centers, um, that's where I also see this shift in unmanaged rec because when you come to Ocala National Forest, we don't have anything to greet you. You don't have a place to stop and get information. Our offices are open 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. I work then. You know, nothing's open on weekends. So if we were able to get portals, visitor centers, um, like a national park where you come into the Everglades and a gate and you 
pull over and you go to the visitor center, there's interpretation, there's maps, there's people who are knowledgeable to talk to you about the different experiences, the rules. I think the unmanaged recreation threats uh, that we see would really go down. So I don't want to be careful because I'm really not banging on the parks people because it's different experiences. Mm -hmm. But to take that to an extreme, why not just send them to Disney? What I mean by that is when you go to the Ocala National Forest or other national forests, it's pretty raw. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a park, it's not, right? There's boardwalks. And, I mean, there's some of that in the well, forest, too. But know. you know, There's some great trails on the Great Smoky Mountains that could kill you if you slip. I know, but you know what I'm saying, though? It's, it, the parks tend to be more manicured. A little more coddling. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. when you're going out to see the wilderness, if you're going to a park, you're probably going to walk away with a different perspective. perspective. Thank you very much for the word. That's exactly what I was looking for than if you wandered out in the middle of Big Scrub. I think you have to tell the story, the significance of the scrub. Like, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff has to be somebody. I mean, how did you learn about the scrub? You know, like, honestly, I didn't learn about the scrub until I started until I started working on the Ocala to be I read the forest plan. I was like, this is really cool. So, you know, it goes back to exposure. You know, if you if you don't, you won't know to protect it or know the, the, the value of it unless somebody explains it to you. And the way may, I might interpret something different than she does, but it's good to have a place to be able to go where you know like, oh, I can learn about like the Longleaf and the history, just the history of the Ocala. We're, we're an agency and we're, and we're just starting to work on that as an agency. We don't, people don't know what we do. We don't, they don't know our story. They don't know the significance of what we do. The fact that we even put money in the treasury, people don't understand that. They don't know the significance of having sustainable timber. They don't understand um, the importance of protecting that resource that's gonna be gone. So that's the that's the difference between going to Disney where you're getting a, a experience, a, a you know, a really cool experience that's safe, you know, well the Forest Service is safe, but you know, it's just it's a little different. You're paying for something that you're, you know, there's expectations. You're expecting a certain experience. But we want to be able to have people to be able to enjoy themselves at the same time when they know more about it. When you can respect something and where it comes from, and what while we're doing what we're doing, it's a little. It makes a you have a different perspective on it. You just really see it a little bit different. You know, my day to day, I do a lot of work with economics, and you mentioned that of all the different things that are going on, that U.S. forestry is a net input, right? They're not a they're they're self-sustaining and actually contributing, you might say, to the... National economy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yet, unless I'm mistaken, forestry's budget keeps getting trimmed a little bit here. That, that's backwards to me. <laughs> well, it's, it's been a shift. Um, it, I, don't I don't mean to put you in a jam either. No, you know. I, there's been a shift in... Um, so, so Congress sets our budget, and it's not a solid-on budget. The, the budget comes out in stovepipes. Our, the budget has shifted away from outdoor recreation and shifted very heavily into national emergency response. We are the nation's firefighting force, also responsive in floods, hurricanes, you know, it's, we get mobilized. So that, the budget's probably similar. Um, I don't want to say that we got less budget. The priorities of what we do with that budget have changed and we don't get to move money around. Our, our budget comes out in codes and you get this much for developed recreation. You get this much for infrastructure. You get, and you don't, I do, am not empowered 
to go and say, I'm not going to pay for developed recreation. I'm going to move all that to my roads. I am not empowered to make that decision. That money comes through with accountability from Congress. So sometimes when someone's like, I, this road's gone to crap, and you know, I can't, this, you, I don't know if you guys dog hunt, but if you run any of our roads during dog hunting season, you see what happens to the roads. And the hunters start to call, and they're like, it's all getting washboarded. Like, well, you know, this is how many hundreds of miles of road I have. This is how much blading costs. This is how much we try to blade towards the neighborhoods. And Forest Road 14 has no houses on it, near it. And I know it's washboarded, but it gets bladed next February. That's the next allocation. So everyone wants us to just you know, make their need the most important, but it's, it's limited. Some years um, you, know, you get more infrastructure money than others. But, so one thing that came up this year was the Great American Outdoors Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, land and so, water conservation. Yeah, fund, that's, fully that's, funded. That is getting um, some attention to some of the developed recreation. And, and anytime some, some of these uh, special funds it's like writing for a grant. It's like we have to compete with other, and, and the national parks get that money too. Great Smoky Mountain National Park, they've got the cash cow, I think. But you know, we have to say, here's, here's what we want to use it on, and it gets rated with every, so we don't get an automatic allocation. It's going to be trying to meet these demands and see what's going on with um, our heritage sites, our historic buildings, and try to get them some attention. But it, it is written competitively. It's going to be. It's different than just automatically getting a chunk of money. Yeah, I just got a call the other day from somebody explaining that from the LWCF they zeroed out. I guess there was a originally some money in the budget to hopefully do some land acquisition in the U, in the uh, Everglades Headwaters uh, Wildlife Refuge, National Wildlife Refuge, and that's a. And that's not necessarily your issue. That's a, an enormous issue to an awful lot of people. And the further south you go, you know, the, the water in Lake Okeechobee, and they just zeroed that out. And a couple people went absolutely apoplectic. <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean you're taking that out? But I get it. There's, well, there's that huge backlog of projects that are supposedly been approved but haven't been funded. And it's a competitive situation. What is it? Is it nine? Is it nine hundred billion? How much? I should know. I, I used to know. I forget how much money goes into that every year. But it's a in a country the size of the United States. I guess it all gets used up pretty quick. That's true. Um, and there are actually when you talk about ways of getting involved, since you're talking about land acquisition, uh, we rely very heavily on some of the local land trusts. Mm-hmm. So Florida has a number of land trusts that work with donors and try to leverage funds and apply for grants so that we can paint more of the map green. And um, we work with numerous land trusts just in this area. So, um, and sometimes we get people who want to donate land to us, or um, and it's hard to donate money or property immediately to the national forests. It's hard to. It yes. is. We're a cumbersome federal agency, and we got you know, is it our best interest to take it? But land trusts are really nimble. So whether you're um, partnering or a member of an active member volunteering with something like the Nature Conservancy mm-hmm. or one of the land trusts, there's there's, um, or sportsmen's groups, there's opportunities where a partner can, can move fast and secure a need or, you know, there's times we're shut down from purchasing mm-hmm. and we've had partners buy um, the varnish or the lumber, like, oh, what, what do you really need? Well, all, we have fire, had fire transfers. So big fires out west, they take the remaining budget. So basically fourth quarter, 
our entire fourth quarter budget now goes to fight fires. Yeah. And we can't even buy a hammer. But I Toilet have partners paper. in town that can, you know, it's like, I just need some signs. They're like, we'll do that for you. Yeah. So there's little ways that just, you know, operations like yours um, can just come through when we need it and just make that little bit of difference. Because when areas look blighted or someone's trying to give property or, you know, there's a piece of property that you see a for sale sign on and you know that is right up against the wilderness or it's just really important, um, sometimes a partner can, can do get it while it takes the government another four or five years for us to to come through with all of our paperwork and our archaeological surveys and our our projects so yeah there's a lot of ways for folks to get involved yeah you were talking about um our needs you said interpretation i would say um stronger solid partnerships as well kind of goes with that just like she was saying about being um other groups can help can do stuff that we cannot do like certain things that the government just cannot do we, we don't raise money yeah we I'm can't gonna, yeah we can't ask for money yeah for cause, yeah know? we can't do that so and if they can go after those funds or some some grants that that come to us i'm trying to find who can i send it to who can apply for it because we can't apply for it but we can certainly help a partnership or, or a partner apply for a grant for you know that that can help us get a project done so that's the kind of stuff that um and the forest service is getting really really serious about partnerships and stuff so it's they've a lot of people jobs have changed here recently where partnerships is um you know top that they're that's the top their top duties and um they they actually they're that's their full-time permanent job as partnerships where it wasn't as much before i'm thinking i didn't see it as much before but now it's We're a really partnership coordinators yes now their entire job yeah that's their job so that it could be i mean you know they're not asking for any particular degree it's just have you worked in that kind of complexity yeah. before it could be someone who's retired from from businesses or um but the partnership coordinators what we we to quote uh, a co-worker of mine we tend to hide our partners from each other so I might go out and do a project with Boy Scouts, and then I might do a project with Under Pressure Outdoors. And then we have a scenic byway, and they, they're working on something. Well, wouldn't we lift this load a lot better if y'all knew about each other? And everyone's like, you know what I really care about? I really care about Ocala National Forest, and it doesn't matter that you fish, I hunt, they bird watch, they like to ride their Jeeps. We care about this place, so let's all see what we can do. And um, I would like to see us have a like a spark event where all the partners come together for a barbecue and everyone gets up and says, this is what we've been doing, and someone can go, hey, you know what? I would really like the backcountry horsemen to bring the horses out to help with the Florida Trail because this is a really tight area, but I hear they have donkeys that are trained for harness, and they can haul the timber into this area we can't get a machine. Or, you know, there's just like neat stuff that I've seen come up um, but if folks don't know they're there, and they're so spread out. You know, Tony and I live over an hour from one another. This is a big forest, so the partner might be in Gainesville. What's someone in Umatilla or Houston's going to know? So if we could get, get everyone together, have a, a partner jamboree, y'all can find each other. And, and We can't bring the ribs, but, you know, we got a grill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had the, uh, the other red meat on the uh, bumper sticker on his car, so... <laughs> Um, I can do a surf and turf with just Florida natives too. So, <laughs> so as much as we talk about the Ocala National Forest, we kind of beat around a little bit. What's the history of the forest? How far back do you want to go? The Pliocene, the Miocene, the well, the here. first people. I'm here for all of it. The Timucuan, the Spanish. Yeah, um, yeah Florida's man. Ocala National Forest. I gotta just 
I'll just pull off on this one. <laughs> it is ecologically such a cool place. You know, it is so amazing. Like I said earlier, um, it, it's been shaped by wind and water. It, to me, it's like the story of true Florida from, from its first emergence out of the ocean. You know, our, our lime rock, where your Floridan aquifer is, that was the seafloor. So, I mean, we're starting with, like, everyone else has dinosaurs, and we have megalodons swimming over top of us. Like, how cool is that right there from the get-go? And then you start having glacial periods in the Pliocene, the Miocene, and, and Florida starts to lift out of the water. And, and the seas are dropping because of all the glaciation. So now we become this island. And then you get into the Pleistocene, and we're cold, and we have snow down in what's now Miami, and the Everglades covered with ice, and we have mammoth and mastodon and glyptodonts, and, and that's when the people, you know, they start coming. So 12,000, 10,000 years ago, you start having the people here. And, and they were here on Ocala National Forest, because you had rivers, which is transportation routes, you have high ground that drains well, you have springs, there's so much food in this place, and except then there was a scrub, and you know, the scrub had acorns, but you're really hanging near the water to live. And those same people, then that, that human pressure kept staying in those same places because life was supported. So you can have, um, whether you pronounce it Timaquan or Timuquan, they're not alive, and I, I don't know how they said it, um, but you know, they came. And the Spanish. The Spanish uh, had land grants. They couldn't really do much with this land, but they were having trade from the natives. Uh, they had Native Americans doing their cattle for them. Uh, we had Seminoles. We had the Seminole Wars here. We had a little, little bit of Civil War skirmishes, nothing much during the Civil War. But, um, you know, after the Civil War, and, well, you know, there were folks that basically the rest of the Deep South got trashed. I mean, it was barren. So you're a veteran, you're going to move your family down here. You hear it's warm, you hear it's green, there's no war. You don't have to see any of the remnants of the um, atrocities of that war down here. So it, um, it just kept being turned over. We had, um, you know, when the Spanish were here, uh, uh, self-liberated slaves could escape to Florida. If they became Catholic, they were given Spanish citizenship. So we have this rich, ancient African-American history here well well before this became part of the United States. And um, so the story of the black Seminoles, because the Seminoles were getting kicked out of, you know, the creek, the creek, out of the Carolinas. So take take the self-liberated slaves down with you and let's all go south of the St. Mary's River and survive. So it's just got, it's been dynamic and interesting always. Um, you know, and, you know, later we go into our modern times and our written history with uh, I kind of want to know how they all got down here before I-75. <laughs> you know, because it was, well, I guess you mentioned that earlier. They came down the St. John's River and then ran up one of the tributaries to get up into the forest. And then I, I, I realize I just said that as a statement. That really was a question. Well, one thing when you look at Florida, remember... It, um, it's highly overgrown. It's turned into thick areas. If you go to someplace like Riverside Island, Paisley Woods, where you guys are, see these big expanses of wire grass, people could ride horses and bring oxen or a mule. I mean, it was easier walking back then. Not that it wasn't hot and long and hard, but um, 
you, when you think about trying to walk anywhere in Florida now, you're looking at this wall of green underbrush from the lack of fire. So mm -hmm. it was easier for transportation over cross country as well. This, even even your flatwoods are overtook with saw palmetto instead of being a grassland with interspersed palmetto. It's we all have that shifted baseline, that new normal. That's the fire suppressed Florida. So those big, sorry, this podcast to go on forever, but those those massive palmetto flats where it's just walls of palmetto for acres and acres and acres, that shouldn't be there because they should have been burned several times to prevent it. Um, it's a shift. It, it's I don't want to say they shouldn't be there, but um, saw palmetto is going to be heaviest in wetter areas, and where it becomes dominant and becomes a solid carpet, it's due to lack of fire. So if you look at a well-burned palmetto flat, it's a tremendous diversity of grasses and flowering plants and legumes for you know wildlife, and there are clumps of palmetto. So uh, if you look at some of the um, South Florida rangelands, the well-burned land range, like, um, like Lex Brothers, uh, you kind of look at what a, a healthy flatwoods look like. It's a little different ecosystem down there with South Florida Slash, and it could be wet, dry prairie, but saw palmetto, it was not a monoculture, historically. Got it. So when was the Ocala National Forest acquired? And how did that go about? 1908, Teddy Roosevelt, the midnight signing deal. So um, the core of Ocala National Forest, so it was probably about less than half of what it is now. This is the big scrub. So when you look at like County Road 42 up to um, what's now Rodman, that core area of big scrub couldn't be homesteaded. So under the Homestead Act, uh, land would be allowed or allotted to a family and they would make the land workable and then be able to, to pay into taxes and they could get ownership. That uh, continually failed in the big scrub. Um, besides growing scrub oaks and scrub jays, there's not a whole lot else you're gonna grow there crop-wise. So it was fallen into public domain and with the big, beautiful, gorgeous western national forests that were being preserved, um, our little patch of Ocala National Forest got tossed in that deal. Uh, it was like signed at five minutes to midnight on Thanksgiving Eve because all the senators and Congress had gone home for the holidays and Teddy, Teddy pulled a fast one out of it. But um, I'm glad he did. And then more of Ocala National Forest was acquired over the years, and a lot of the uh, Eastern National Forests were acquired during the Depression because they were cut over, um, cut over, grained, grazed over. Think the understanding of managing for sustainability that you wouldn't overgraze or you wouldn't cut every single tree that you needed to keep some trees for shade and for seed for the next generation of, of trees, um, that wasn't understood until our, our, the science of forestry and the science of wildlife management and fisheries management emerged in the last hundred years. So what's your guys' favorite place in the forest and, and what makes it special to you? Oh my gosh, how do you, how do you pick your favorite song, your favorite band? Um, there's, there's not a single place. I don't have that answer. There's no one place in Ocala National Forest. There's every day that I'm out there, there's like another little miracle. And you might be in a place you didn't think was so special, and maybe you see that one pool of water, or you see that 
insect, even though I've been there for almost 30 years, I've never seen that insect or I've never seen this incredible moment of, um, you know, a bobcat taking a turkey or I, just like there's like this moment or this, the way the light is coming through the lopsided Indian grass. It's all got those cool orange seeds hanging, you know, it's one time a year at sunset. It's, you just got to be everywhere and grab moments as you see them. And probably the worst thing is if there's a spot that was special and you go and it's been discovered as a place to mud. Um, probably our wetlands, because they're so rare, they all serve like an oasis. To find an intact, unmudded wetland is rare and it's gorgeous and it's just so full of life, especially during the dry season when everything, all wildlife needs water and tender You look at Google Earth and you look at our wetlands on Google Earth and you find some that don't have white sand around them and it is, it is so rare. And in that zone between the water and the trees is so important for, especially during the droughty season for the deer. These little bands of succulent vegetation are all there is. And I, I really am convinced that we change the bioenergetics of our forests by people tearing around the edges of wetlands. It's, it's, uh, it's the food. It's the grocery store in a place that has very little water most of the year. You really get a different appreciation when you when you when you see it through a biologist's eyes, right? Because I, 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 there's a whole bunch of those little small ponds, or and they've all got little canoe launches in them. But you're right around all of them. There's a road. There's a ring that goes around almost every one of them. Yeah, that's not a road. It was created by people that were. There's no road number. That's not. It it looks like a road. But people have insisted on driving the wetlands, and as the footprint shrinks, that area gets lower and lower. And I'm like, well, that's... Deer can buzz the tops out of dollar weed like a lawnmower when there's no, no water and the scrub is dry or the, the sand hills are dry. And I'd look at these kids, I'm like, you're going to be out here in deer season? You're going to wonder why you're not getting a, a buck. Like, what you just took away all the spring food. You see how dry it was this April and May? Where are they getting anything to eat? It's, it's always going to be where the water is. That's the difference between a lot of our flatwoods wildlife management areas that are in wet soils. When you have your soil is sand, those wetlands are everything to everything you care about. We should probably try to do a podcast with Carrie and some of her cohorts about, well, you want to be a better hunter. You, learn, you need to learn how to read the forest. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and not, not obviously not identifying spots, but saying no. if you want to be better at it, this is what you need to understand and why, and then you go out there and figure it out. So we're gonna go ahead and wrap this thing up. If you guys would just before we do that, share with us uh, a fun or funny story or something from your time spent in the beautiful woods of Florida. <laughs> oh. Okay, I can go. Okay, you tell one. Some of the, some of the fun, funnest things I've ever done is just being with the law enforcement. Just, just talking to people and hearing them not telling, not the whole story sometimes, and then digging deeper in it. But you just you learn a lot about people and, and their struggles. We've we've had people that like we just kind of little lady living in her car, and so she 
she was really funny about what she liked to eat. So um, she didn't eat red meat. So we bought her something one day, and she was like, I can't eat. They're trying to kill me. So we, we went and found her some fish because she liked fish. And then, unfortunately, she died in her car. But we were we we all took care of her. Like we all like I mean, it was she was Miss Claire. She was supposed to be like clairvoyant. Like she was telling us our telling us our story and history and stuff. And so it was kind of entertaining, but it was it was as heartwarming at, at the same time. But we worked with such great people that we really wanted to make sure she was okay. So we we kept having to move her from different place to place. But she taught us a lot while we you know taught her and it was just it was just fun interacting with people it's, and it was with law enforcement that we just were suckers you know they're they're law enforcement carry gun but they have a heart and it's just it's fun being around and working with them and then it was just fun making sure this little old lady had what she needed you know to make it so it's it's a it's a funny story but it's a heartwarming story at the same time but that was probably one of my that will always be one of my best memories of working on the Cali National Forest. Um, I think when we're all working together in hardships and um, having people that when something goes wrong, we can just make it so silly that we're laughing. Uh, we had an airboat engine blow up on Sellers Lake and it was after five o'clock and everybody went home. And, um, and I was trying to lay on the bow of the airboat and paddle it like a surfboard. And our fisheries biologist was trying to paddle with the one little canoe paddle that we had. He'd go to the left and go to the right. And then we'd get a big puff of wind and it would take us right back. I think we went back and forth. We probably mowed, it was like mowing the lawn. And I was getting exhausted. Um, but you know, we just kept laughing. And it's like, it's gonna get dark. And this is before cell, cell phones. Uh, it's like, hey, Bobby, is, is your wife gonna worry about you? He goes, I don't know, but if she does, she's gonna call the office and nobody's there. I'm like, man. Okay, let's try some more. And I was like, you know, eventually when, when night comes, the the storm fronts will lay down and, and then we won't have any wind. It, it took us, um, I don't know, two or three hours to maybe <laughs> go 150 yards to that stupid airboat fan just kept picking the wind up again. Um, but just having someone <laughs> to laugh about it. And I was like, I'll jump in and I'll, I'll tow it because my, my arms are getting tired paddling. So let me use my legs, and I did. I grabbed the rope, and I start kicking a little bit. And just just little things like that that could be miserable if you weren't with the right people. Or, um, geez, I remember one time we were burning in a, a marsh, and um, the guys let me off to, to light the marsh. I was, I was way inside Half Moon. And they went ahead and took the boat down the canal, and they didn't realize that the marsh basically bottomed out where it looked like it was solid ground in the mating cane, but there was a whole lot of nothing. So I had to swim with my drip torch across a gator hole. <laughs> and they just kept talking and moving. I could see them moving further and further away from me. And then eventually I was like, I got them caught up, but I'm soaking wet. And they're like, why are you wet? I was like, you guys left me. I had fire behind me. I couldn't wait for you because now I've lit the marsh and marshes burn hot. And there was there was no land under the rest of this mating cane. It was just basically burning grass with, you know, a six-foot drop of water beneath. And then I'm trying to see where the female gator is going to be. I'm like, I'm going to get killed by a gator with a torch in my hand. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, so just stuff like that. That um, You're like, yeah, that's why you got to keep your communications, folks. You, you kind of left me behind. But it's just, like, funny, you know. We just, sometimes things, you, you try to do everything right, do everything safely. But um, 
people are people, they get distracted. I think Mike and Bobby were in the middle of a good story and forgot about me. <laughs> I got fire behind me and a gator in front of me, man, yeah. and my buddies were gone. So just little stuff like that. It's um, it's always fun trying to take care of the woods and, and, and we, we do a lot of work with chainsaws and hurricanes and invariably something's gonna crack you up. Yep. I had a fire experience, like I think probably the only time they let me burn with them. <laughs> You like the wrong side of the I burned the wrong side, like, and it was like probably was like two miles. I'm like, how did she walk so fast? It, they had to get the dozer to put it out. Like, I was totally, on the, and I kept getting on the radio, and he didn't hear me. <laughs> so I was totally on the wrong side. But it, they were like, "You move really fast, like you walk really fast." And I was like, "Hey, you told me to go straight, and I went straight, but I was on the wrong side." So, <laughs> and I was never asked to burn on that side of the forest again. So, <laughs> the first and the last time. <laughs> Well, each week we like to end our episode with a, with a segment we call the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. And uh, so I'll go ahead and lead us off, and I'm going to go back to something I said earlier, which is don't take it for granted. Uh, if, if we don't continue to, to do things to help our forests and the, the woods around us, we are going to lose them. So what do you got, Jordan? I'm going to say don't be afraid to go volunteer. Man, we... We drove out to that trash cleanup and picked up a ton of trash, but it was a blast. And like the people that we got to meet do it, it was amazing. I can't, re- I'm ready for another one. It's actually a great segue because I was going to say that if we met so many people from US, the US Forest Service while we were out doing that trash cleanup, that's what led us here today. And my tip of the week is that. If you catch them when they're not really busy, which is probably fairly rare, if you can get time to chat with a forest or somebody who's on the ground and get them to tell you a little bit about the area, the resources, the wildlife, um, it's like going, it's, it's, it'll shorten your learning curve incredibly. Um, and we, we had a lot of conversation here this evening that won't be on the podcast that was still incredibly informative and it'll probably lead to other podcasts but take the time to speak with those folks they're not just dressed up in boy scout uniforms for looks (laughs) well that's a perfect segue to mine which is listeners don't believe what you read on the internet go ahead and give us a call we love telling you about our forests we love telling you where to go what to enjoy i love talking to hunters i love talking to anglers I love talking to people who want to know some cool places to hike for, you know, whether you have small kids with you or you want to go out for three days and and be by yourself. So um, there's a lot of folks putting misinformation out there, and it is not the USDA Forest Service. So start with us first and foremost, and then you can have a great trip. Okay, piggybacking on what you're saying, um, I would like to encourage everyone to step outside their comfort zone and try something new. Um, think about it from the other person's user's um, perspective. You know, maybe try birding if you're not a birder. Um, uh, maybe try hunting if you're not a hunter. Just try something new. Step out of your comfort zone so you can get all different kinds of perspectives. Yeah, walk a mile in the other user's shoes. Exactly. Well, speaking of walk a mile, we still got the hike to hunt going on. Uh, so if you guys want to donate to that uh, through the Under Pressure Outdoors team to walk even further. You can go right down the bottom of the podcast description. There'll be a link down there for it. In addition to that, you're going to see a link to our Facebook page and our Facebook group for you guys to join the podcast community. 
And then there's going to be a link to join BHA because that's how we, in all reality, ran into these great people with the USDA Forest Service because we were out there trying to get a last run at our gobblers and garbage cleanup. We went out to their forest cleanup event and picked up some more garbage, and it's it's led to what's going to be a a great relationship. Um, so how can they find you guys? Um, we are well, I guess. We're on social media. You can con- you can leave a um, message on like Facebook. If you leave a message, they can get in contact with us. We check they check the messages, so that's a good way to get in contact with us. Or you can call our offices. We have um, people answering, and they can um, just call and ask for either Carrie or I, and they can get you in contact with us. They can get you our email addresses and whatnot. What's that Facebook link? I'll put it down there in the bottom of the podcast description as well, so they can go on there. If you have a social media page, you guys are posting to, they can like and follow it. And- our um, Facebook page is a National Forest in Florida. So that's our, um, it, it encompasses all three of our national forests, and it, that's regularly checked by our public affairs. And they, they, any questions that are sent there to them, they make sure it gets to the right person to be answered. So even if you have a question about something, you're not sure what forest it is, they'll figure it out and get it to the right person. And also awesome. has our contact information. It has the, like the phone numbers and whatnot to the, different, to, the, well, to the main office, and they'll get it to us. And if you Google National Forest in Florida, we're the second thing that came up. Like I said, we'll get buried uh, behind other things, but National Forest in Florida will get you all National Forest in Florida, and then you can click on your favorite forest, or you can also click around and explore other forests that maybe you haven't been to, because each forest is really, really different, special, and unique. Well, I'll put some of those links down in the bottom of the podcast description so people can just, when they're listening, they can scroll right down and click straight from there and then follow you guys on social media and look at some of these new forests through that link off of Google and all that other great stuff. I really appreciate you guys joining us tonight, and I look forward to uh, our future endeavors. Thank you. Oh, this was great fun. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. You guys are great ambassadors. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. It's been awesome.